Hello, and welcome to the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement podcast, a podcast highlighting interdisciplinary research, discussion, and education about forced displacement, one of the major moral imperatives of our time. All right, so today I am joined with Rachel Nolan, an assistant professor of international relations at Boston University and an affiliate faculty member with CFD. So, Professor Nolan, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, so I know you've traveled a lot as a historian, a journalist, author, scholar, you know, the list goes on. And I, as I understand it, your work focuses mainly around U.S. and Latin American relations. So you gave a really interesting presentation last spring as kind of part of our Sawyer seminar series, and in that you recapped a bit of your experience living and working in Guatemala. And while I know you speak Spanish, you mentioned that you don't fluently speak, you know, the numerous indigenous languages that are spoken throughout the country. So I'm kind of hoping to sit down with you today and talk through a bit about language barriers, like, you know, doing field work in an area where you don't particularly maybe speak the language. So first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. It's going to be a pleasure to speak about some of these language barriers and translation issues with you today. You're absolutely right. I do most of my field work and interviews are I do most of my field work and my interviews and archival research in Guatemala, something that people don't tend to know about Guatemala unless you've had the opportunity to live there or travel there is that the, about half of the population speaks one of 22 Mayan indigenous languages. And so people think of Latin America, they think of Spanish. That's true in many countries. Obviously, Brazilians speak Portuguese, Haitians speak Haitian Creole. But in Guatemala, the indigenous languages are still rich, present. And if you step out of the airport, if you step into any market, you're going to hear Mayan languages. Mm-hmm. Um, my training was as a historian of Latin America. I'm fluent in Spanish. I speak you were very kindly said, I'm not fluent. I don't speak Mayan languages at all. So okay. I speak a couple of words, you know, Uts means good in many Mayan languages, but this is not something that was part of my historical training. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a historian and a journalist. So this only really started to pose a problem once I was doing a lot of interviews. My first book um, is about to come out in January and it's about the history of international adoption from Guatemala. For that project, I was mostly doing archival research or interviews in Spanish. And that despite the fact that many of the women who relinquished their children for adoption on the international adoption um, market, because that's really the right word for something that was so highly commercialized, many of the women who relinquished their children for the international adoption market were indigenous and spoke Mayan languages. But all of the paperwork produced for the adoption process was done in Spanish by Spanish language speaking social workers, lawyers, etc. And so I realized early in the project that it wasn't going to be ethical to get in touch with birth mothers, many of whom hoped to give up their children in secret or had not left contact information hoping that a researcher would get in touch with them, but maybe that the child would eventually one day get in touch with them. So once I realized that that wasn't going to be ethical, speaking a Mayan language seemed less important to that research project that I was doing. But recently, as you may know from presentations at the Center on Forced Displacement and other uh, work that I've done at BU, I've gotten really interested in the issue of deportation. And there, there's much, you know, there the language barrier with people who speak Mayan languages is much higher. Because if you think about the kinds of people who are forced to migrate to the United States, many of them are from the most impoverished, dispossessed communities in Guatemala. That overlaps really strongly with the Maya indigenous groups. Mm. So 
I am looking into learning one of the two mind languages, Kiche. I haven't even, I barely started putting together who I could learn that from, et cetera. But that hasn't been part of my past research. And all of the people who I've interviewed who are Mayan language speakers have spoken either fluent Spanish or English. But that's a real barrier to doing the kinds of research that I want to do on deportation. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, this is um, like a new kind of a new project for you then and a new obstacle, I guess, in a lot of senses. Um, have you conducted any interviews yet in or have you kind of interacted in that space with indigenous language speakers? Oh, sure. I mean, I've been doing interviews uh, in Guatemala since I first started traveling there in 2014. So what generally happens is if you speak one Mayan language, if you live in a very remote community or in certain parts of the country, you may be monolingual. But most Mayan language speakers speak at least a little bit of Spanish. Um, but as a researcher, that may put that person at a disadvantage or they may not be able to express themselves most fully when doing an interview with an outsider. So in those cases, you need a Mayan language interpreter. And then you're always playing telephone, right, between yeah. whatever the language in question is and then the language that you may speak fluently, be it Spanish, be it English. So it's only recently that I have started this new project and thought, OK, now is really the time to address my language deficiencies. And I will also say, even for those of us who are fluently uh, even for those of us who are fluent in other languages, when we're doing historical research, we're doing our own translations. And most of us are not trained translators. So that's a, that brings up a right. whole kind of other set of issues. Yeah. And so when you first kind of started delving a little bit deeper into this work, working with um, indigenous speakers and kind of working maybe alongside translators, was there any kind of initial discomfort? And how did you kind of like enter into that space? Well, I think anyone who does research in a country that's not their own is going to, you know, feel some initial discomfort. And yeah. that's part of um, what is interesting and, and useful, I think, not just about a historian or a journalist going somewhere that might be unfamiliar to them, but for a student, too. I'm always trying to get my students out the door into, into some kind of study abroad program or something even less structured than that so that they can experience some of that discomfort. So I don't think discomfort in itself is a bad thing. I do think it's important for researchers to know where their blind spots are, and often those blind spots can be linguistic. Um, and so many researchers in Guatemala think that it's perfectly adequate to go there, speak only Spanish, and gather data or interviews that way. That was maybe the case when I was doing archival research because um, there's not just a language barrier in Guatemala. There's significant discrimination against indigenous language speakers. Most of the official documents are in Spanish. There was a genocide against Maya indigenous peoples in the 1980s. So this is a historically dispossessed community. If you're going in looking for certain kinds of documents, government decrees, official reports, those are all going to be in Spanish. So you can meaningfully do research in Spanish in Guatemala, of course, but then you've got this massive blind spot when it comes to the very numerous indigenous community there. Yeah. So I guess thinking about that and those blind spots, in terms of kind of the ethicality of entering into a space where you know, you're know you thinking about the blind spots and wondering where your place is alongside of that as a researcher, maybe coming in with the comfortability of maybe I only speak Spanish, should I only stay here? Um, how do you kind of think about that as a researcher? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's, you know, most anthropologists who are cognizant and reading scholarship in their field are aware of the kind of 
what what they would call positionality or you know just what it means to be someone who looks white and is doing research in Guatemala or who looks foreign or who looks Spanish speaking etc who is Spanish speaking or is white in those spaces and so I think the number one first thing to do is to look up the research that's being done about a community by members of that community so there's a kind of request or kind of even slogan in Native American studies that that says um, no research about us without us. The idea being the Native scholars should be in front leading whatever the particular research agenda is. And in Guatemala, we're extremely lucky that there are Quiche speaking um, anthropologists like Irma Alicia Nimetufe Velasquez, who's done incredible work in both Quiche and Spanish trying to explain some of the migration flows that I'm interested in. So my first step is not to try to barge in myself to a, a community that may have historical reasons to be fearful of outsiders, for example, but rather to read some of the scholarship that's been produced by Irma Alicia Nimatuj and other scholars that is available to me in Spanish. So there's a kind of way to be aware of some of the ethical uh, problems and the power differentials without shying away from doing research altogether. So just to give another example, I was just reading a book by Eliane Brum, who's a Brazilian journalist writing about the Amazon. And she, for many years, didn't write about indigenous peoples at all because she doesn't speak Yanomami. She doesn't speak any of the relevant indigenous languages. And then she thought, well, she was writing for Folha de São Paulo, which is a major newspaper in Brazil. And she wasn't using her megaphone about those issues. So she eventually moved to the Brazilian Amazon. She still doesn't speak uh, indigenous Brazilian languages that I know of, but she started writing about those indigenous communities respectfully with translators, with kind of humility about her own position as an outsider. And I think that that's a better solution than someone like her just having the megaphone for better or for worse, but refusing to use it when it came to certain writing about certain communities. It's a really fraught issue. And I think that um, well-meaning people disagree. Yeah. So I guess kind of coming more into your experience, like here I am thinking like, okay, this is a this makes sense. This is a good idea. So you moved to Guatemala for a period of time. How did you kind of go about trying to find a connection or kind of bridge that gap within your research? It's a really fraught question in Guatemala, above all, because Guatemala suffered a 36-year civil war um, during which 200,000 people died. It's the bloodiest conflict in Latin American uh, Cold War history. And the United States was one of the major perpetrators in that conflict, backing uh, right-wing military dictatorships and backing dictators who were committing genocide during the 1980s. So the U.S. has a really um, strong historical culpability when it comes to Guatemala. If you arrive and you're a graduate student, um, you can't. It, it's not an environment in which you can just call up whoever you want and ask them for an interview. People are fearful of outsiders. They're mistrustful. Um, it's not just a historical question. There's a contemporary problem of violence and um, street gangs that engage in extortions. So, you know, your average Guatemalan is not going to pick up the phone when you are calling them because they might be fearful that it is someone extorting them or. Um, they're just more fearful of outsiders for very good reasons. So when I was trying to conduct interviews, even really basic interviews in Spanish, I mean, we're not even getting to the indigenous um, communities question here. Often I would need an introduction from someone who was known to the person in question to be able to get in touch with them. You send a, you get someone's cell phone number, you send a WhatsApp message before you call them saying, hey, this, you know, Julio gave me your number. My name is Rachel Nolan. I'm a historian or journalist or so on and so forth. Without personal introductions, interviews were going nowhere fast. Interesting. 
yeah, I guess this is something you don't really learn until you kind of go into the field is like, there's no guidebook for how to like, you know, make those connections with, um, with your sources and with the people. And so in terms of like your work interviewing, um, were, were, when you were interviewing, you were explaining, you know, some was in Spanish, some was in indigenous languages. What is kind of the experience of trying to like conduct an interview maybe with a translator? Well, conducting interviews with translators uh, really depends on not just the intellectual skills of the translator, but on their interpersonal skills, because there are translators who are language machines and they can translate everything one for one. You know, there are translators who work at the United Nations going from this language to that language and back again. Um, and then there are translators who have social skills and can really put people at ease in the way that you want in an interview. Um, so if I am, you know, finding a translator to work with, um, one of the key kind of characteristics that I'm looking for is what are their social skills and also kind of existing contacts in any given community. If they're a well-respected and well-liked person in the community where I'm doing interviews, that interview is going to go a lot better than someone who has a really good command of, I don't know, Kakchi Kelt, for example, but doesn't really have a lot of rapport with the person in question. Just to be clear, I've done most of my interviewing in Spanish. Mm -hmm. It's just now with this new project where I'm starting to do more interviews with deportees that I'm moving into some more indigenous dominant areas. I also would mention I have interviewed some interpreters, you know, rather than using interpreters in my research, I have interviewed um, interpreters who speak the language mom, which is one of the 22 Mayan languages who assist mom speaking asylum seekers in the U.S. immigration system. And that has been a really interesting experience as well. Interesting. And so how does the like social connection work? If it's kind of this idea of like you're asking someone else to ask your interview subject a question and then it's being kind of relayed back. I know there's a lot of trust, I guess, in the translator and you have to pick wisely like who you're using to translate. But mm. how does that like social connection feel? Well, if you don't speak the same language as someone, it's really important when you are interviewing that person to maintain some kind of other cues. So how would I explain? Eye contact, I mean, it sounds silly, but eye contact is more important than usual. Gestures are more important than usual to show that you understand and receive the information that the person is mm. relaying back to you. Wow. Okay. Um, I... I get this question a lot and I know a lot of other students have this question of like language barriers in general. Like let's say someone doesn't speak fluent Spanish or maybe doesn't have, you know, a proficiency in Spanish that would allow them to do, you know, maybe that work in a Spanish speaking country. Would you say that that kind of like what would you respond to that in terms of someone who's wanting to do research um, potentially maybe in Latin America or even in a country where they don't maybe fluently speak the language? I say the first principle is do no harm. So if anything about your kind of lack of fluency or kind of cultural bumbling is going to be harmful to the community in question, don't do it. It's not worth it. Thing number two, which I said in earlier in the interview is community members out front, right? So if there's any research that's being produced from that community by members of that community, that's got to be at the top of your agenda. But thing number three, don't write off a possibility just because you don't have full fluency, right? If I had waited until I had full fluency in Spanish to start interviewing people, I would have been, you know, that would have 
meant that I never got full fluency because I wouldn't have been interviewing people. Mm. So um, as long as you're aware of your limitations, I most students seem underconfident based on their language skills rather than overconfident. So you occasionally have someone striding into a situation where they have no business in being with very few language skills, and that does worry me. But I see the kind of opposite more often where students frankly, don't want to be embarrassed. They're hesitant to um, try to use languages that they don't speak entirely fluently. And if, if you have that hesitancy, you are never going to build up language skills in that way. So if you are doing no harm, if you are aware of the needs and desires of the community where you're doing research, if, if you are, certainly if you're just trying to go somewhere and live and learn, that's, that's always the easiest, right? Research, there's a higher level of, you know, but if it's a question of going somewhere and trying to live in the language, I always try to get students out the door and you have to get over the embarrassment factor. If I try to learn, I'm never going to be fluent in Quiche. Um, I really want to start studying it maybe as soon as next semester because I have a sabbatical. Um, I have no illusions that I will become fluent enough to do incredible interviews in Quiche. That's not happening for me. I'm 38 years old. I'd be very surprised. But there's a lot more than just language wrapped up in language. What I'm interested in studying is, you know, how the grammar works, how people think about or talk about time in a different kind of language. I mean, some of the more cultural elements that are tied up in language, I'd like to have a little, not perfect access to because that's not a real thing, but like just a little bit more insight into. And I really think it's time for me as someone who has written one book about Guatemala, spent a lot of time there um, to kind of expand my view uh, beyond the written sources, which tend to be in Spanish, to some of these other lived experiences that tend to be in Mayan languages instead. So that's my that's my kind of next goal and exciting. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I'll get bogged down in, in the difficulties of learning a new language, but I'm, I'm going to try. That is exciting. Um, and yeah, it was kind of interesting for me to hear that you maybe weren't fluent in Spanish or at least had that full comfortability um, when you first started working in this field. Well, I'm, I grew up in Boston, in the Boston area, um, in a monolingual English household, and I struggled, struggled, struggled to become fluent in Spanish. And when I first lived in Mexico in my 20s, I was a freelance journalist, and my Spanish was fine. But it was, it sounded silly. You know, I had a terrible accent, and I was grasping for certain words. I, there was also a period in my life when I learned fluent German, so that got in the way. Um, and you just have to, you know... Always remember that if you're in a part of the world like Mexico, like Guatemala, where people, not all people, but people tend to be kind and generous to those who are making an effort, you know, be willing to meet that generosity with the with the um, inclination to embarrass yourself. And then similarly, when you're back home in North America, be inclined to extend that generosity to all those who are struggling with this language, right? And so... If I ever hear someone being impatient with a person who speaks English as a second or third or fourth language, it drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah, I agree. Well, that is inspiring to all of us little language learners out there. Um, Duolingo was founded by Guatemalan, putting in a plug for that. Dang. I, I have mixed feelings about how useful <laughs> it is for um, fully learning languages, but to get started or to kind of include it as part of your daily routine, Luis Van An is... Uh, he now lives in Pittsburgh, I believe, but he's Guatemalan and he uh, created the app. Wow. Awesome. Cool. Well, I'm wondering, yeah, if there's anything else you want to add today, kind of about your experience, um, kind of tackling language barriers. No, I just really encourage people to 
make the effort to learn foreign languages because it's really difficult to get outside of your own national worldview if you don't have access to even something as simple as El País, you know, a Spanish language newspaper or La Jornada in Mexico or Prensa Libre with all of its many problems in Guatemala. If you can't read the news in another language, you're missing a really serious dimension. So even beyond learning more difficult languages like uh, Mayan languages, which I really hope to be able to do, learning even a really basic world language at the level where you can listen to the radio or podcasts or the news in that language is well worth it for your life. It really, it's a struggle, I know, because I've done it. And so it's a struggle, but it's really well worth it, I think. And then even once you speak a language fairly well, to try to remain attentive to where your blind spots might be or humble about your ability to really understand what's going on around you at any given time. And you will become similarly productively confused in your native language arena as well, I think. I allow myself to be more confused and think, oh, well, what does that, you know, they're using a kind of business speak. What does synergy really mean? You know, I speak fluent English, but what, what are they talking about? So it can make you more attentive in all, all cultural contexts to speak a foreign language. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. And yeah, for anyone who's out there listening, you can check out Professor Nolan's um, Sawyer seminar presentation that we were talking about, which is part of our Sawyer Bites podcast, and that'll be linked below. For more information on the new ideas, technologies, scholarship, awareness, and solution identification happening at Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement, go check out the website, www.bu.edu slash cfd slash which will also be linked in the description. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.